Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read this morning. We're just jump right in um, as to what we're going to be taking a look at. So up on the screen, we'll have kind of the passages that we'll take a look at. Um, verse 14 is where I actually want to begin. So we'll start at verse 14, and then we'll jump down to the passages that we left off with last week, uh, which is verses 18 and 19. So kind of setting the stage real briefly, as we said last week, that Paul is basically talking about how the gospel actually Uh, affects and changes the way that we live our lives. And one of the main ways in which it does this is not just internally makes us new people, makes us, you know, Christians that love God and uh, and it doesn't just simply affect the way that we operate and act with other people on a horizontal level with regard to church, but also um, spills over into the culture and into the society. And one of the ways in which it does this, Paul basically addresses uh, three major roles that every one of us are either currently right now playing or one day will end up playing in culture and society as, at large. And that will be either in the way of being um, involved in a marriage, so you'll either get married um, or having a family. Um, he talks about fathers and um, sons and daughters, fathers and children. And then finally, he's going to basically land on talking about um, owners and their employees or servants and masters, uh, depending upon the various types of translations that you have. And so this is basically Paul's way of saying that the gospel changes. Fundamentally, the way the gospel changes, it begins to change you personally, but then it begins to work its way out into the rest of the broader culture and society. And so um, what we said last week is we basically gave kind of a 30,000 feet above ground um, look at this. And so we just kind of flew over it, really try to understand this from a bigger, larger perspective. And then what we said is that we would spend the next several weeks um, unpacking each of these roles, because I think there's a lot to be said about each one of these roles. So um, today we'll be taking a look at specifically the role of marriage. <clears throat> Before you uh, choose to take a nap right now, I just want to listen up real quickly. All right, because some of you, I know most of you right now, just out of curiosity, how many of you are actually single? Raise your hand. Single, raise your hand. It's a lot. How many of you are actually married? Just equal, give you all equal uh, space. Okay, great. So it's maybe half and half. So, which is pretty, pretty standard for our church. In fact, I would say that probably the majority of our church, probably within the 60% of tall range, when we're operating at full capacity, when all the students are back, maybe 60 to 70 or 80 percentile range of people in this church are not married. So some of you might kind of hear the subject matter of marriage and immediately look at this kind of nap time. But what I want to suggest you to think about is that statistically, every single one of you in this room, the majority of you, between 80 to 90% will become, will be married at some point in their lives. Some of you will be married several times. Our aim, our goal would be to hopefully help not create or create a scenario where that does not happen in your life. But the fact of the matter is the majority of you will be married at some point in your life. So before you tune out, before you kind of see this as irrelevant, I want you to just listen to the fact that you will at some point uh, be married or at some point you will engage in a relationship. um, And it may just be around the corner. It might even be a week away from you being confronted with the reality that I can marry this person. What does that mean? What does that look like? And so what I want to begin to do is I want to uh, understand how Paul um, begins to think about how the gospel begins to reshape our understanding of marriage. So I'll pick it up. Begin by reading at verse 14 and then go down to verse 18 and 19. So, starts at verse 14, he says this. He says, And put, and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I want to pause real quick and just state this seems to be the climax of what Paul is saying in terms of how the gospel moves over us as individuals, as people, as a community, as a church. Is that, again, his emphasis upon the word above all things. Paul's basically saying that, look, I've talked with you guys about a lot of stuff. 
We've talked about having a good attitude. We've talked about you being kind. We've talked about you not being sexually promiscuous. We've talked about and dressed all sorts of ways by which you can have behavior that can be self-destructive, but also destructive to the environment or society around you at large. Paul is now going to shift gears and say, really, above all these things, in other words, the most important thing I can emphasize to you is clothe yourself in love. Because here's what love does. And he tells us straight up, Here's why clothing ourselves, robing ourselves in love, putting it on like a garment is so essential because Paul says, this binds everything together in perfect harmony. So this is so essential to what Paul's about to begin to unpack for us because I think if you are anything like me, there is a hint of cynicism, if not a lot of cynicism, in the way you tend to view the world. Because for the most part, if you're honest with yourself, is that the world in which we live in is not one that's being bound together in harmony. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's being divorced and broken down and disintegrated and torn apart by destruction, disharmony, dissonance, brokenness. Why? Because nobody loves each other. Nobody loves each other. Nobody is willing to actually go the extra mile. And that's just the world that we live in. And so I'm not, and don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not saying like Christians are doing a great job and everybody else out there isn't. I'm saying that, that this actually affects Christians too. This is one of the reasons why Paul is actually writing this letter to a church because he's saying, I realize you may be struggling in this area because by nature, the default mode of your heart is to not be loving. Paul's point is that that path of self-centeredness, that path actually leads to disharmony, leads to disunity, leads to breakdown, leads to divorce. The flip side of that is, is love actually leads to binding together, coming together, being united, becoming one in harmony, like a symphony, like a beautiful song being sung. Everyone's playing their part, and there's a sense of beauty about that. In fact, um, that word that Paul actually uses there for Bind is actually found elsewhere in the New Testament. In one of the translations, actually, it's the word that's simply translated as ligament. You might be like, ligament. Why is it translated there, ligament, and here, bind? Because it's the same idea. That's what a ligament does. It joins together two bones and allows them to work together. Now, if somehow that ligament snaps or somehow it breaks or somehow it's not working together, what you have is basically a bone out of joint or disharmony. If you've ever had a bone out of a joint, it doesn't just simply affect that area. It affects everything. And if you're a dude, it affects everything in your life. And you oftentimes milk it, right? Some of the women are like, yes, they do milk it. That's right. They milk it. They want a lot of love and back massages and food. And the reality is, is that this is what Paul's saying, is that when love is working and we are robing ourselves, clothing ourselves in love, what happens is harmony being joined together. And what Paul's going to begin to do now is unpack how this works and how this looks like in marriage. He's going to say now, verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I'm going to stop. We'll pray. We'll jump in. God, we ask for your help right now. And we just recognize that already we can relate and identify with the simple fact that we see a lot of disharmony, a lot of brokenness, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain 
in our world. Some of us, God, we are on the front lines of that. We've drunk in deeply of that cup, and it's still bitter. It's still painful. And even just talking of marriage, even mentioning this just brings up and rips open a wound that's hurtful and painful and perhaps even very disheartening and terrifying to talk about. And we ask you, God, that you would help give us boldness to deal with this, to unpack this, to understand this, not from the way the culture has understood it because culture is made up of people. People are us, and we operate according to default modes of our heart, which are at the core, self-centered. But God, what we want is we want to have our minds renewed in your word. We want to be renewed people, redeemed people, <coughs> understanding things in a way, God, that, that is redemptive. So help us right now, we pray. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I want to immediately kind of start with a couple questions. And the first thing I want to take a look at is this question, which is really, why is gospel reshaped marriage important? Because in essence, we've kind of been saying this all along, that Paul is saying that when the gospel changes you, it's just not this private ordeal. It's just not you and Jesus on some rock praying a prayer. You're part of a community. You got to understand that. If you, you missed last week, I'd really encourage you maybe go on our website, download the message for free, and listen to it. Because really, hopefully, this puts everything into context. Christianity is not just simply a private affair that we do on our own and just have a simple, like, internal feeling about Jesus. It affects us, yes, internally and personally, but it also has very practical and social rep, uh, repercussions with regard to our life in the way that we live our lives. And so, the point that Paul is going to be making is that. Um, the gospel then begins to work its way out of our lives in all sorts of areas with regard to our marriages, with regard to our families, and with regard to our workplaces. And so the question really has to be kind of asked is that why is gospel reshaped marriage important? Like what's Paul going for? Why is he so concerned about this? Why does he even use marriage and family in the workplace as, in, as examples? Why didn't he choose other examples to kind of begin to investigate? So the answer that I want to throw out and for us to consider, next slide, is uh, he's going to begin to sort of tell us at least kind of, at least in theory throughout the rest of it. And this is kind of my wording of this, but uh, really at the end of the day, this all matters because when done right, this actually becomes a living metaphor and apologetic and really a window into Jesus's beauty. In other words, what Paul's going to be saying is that God actually uses certain things in our lives as metaphors, the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we deal with things as a way of basically pointing to the reality behind it. So for example, God, C.S. Lewis actually kind of talks a lot about this type of stuff in a lot of his books, but um, God actually uses certain things in this world as fundamentally as signs pointing back to him. So in other words, you can take uh, the picture of a father. And the reason why we have some sort of an idea of an understanding of a father is because all earthly fathers point to a uh, larger, more graphic, more real depiction of a father uh, with regard to God. Um, and all of these types of analogies or pictures that we have in our culture point to something or some sort of reality that's greater beyond them. And what Paul is really trying to say is that marriage fits within that same category. That when marriage is lived out properly and lived out in a way and lived out in a proper perspective, the way that God wants to reinform and reorient our hearts towards, what it does is it actually becomes this living, breathing parable or metaphor for what God is like. And most of us can understand this. I mean, we've seen people that are really kind or generous. 
we've watched them, we've seen certain circumstances they've gone through, maybe rather than them being all bitter in life or frustrated or angry or cranky, instead, they're like really kind and very generous and very giving. We look at people like that, and we're kind of, we're kind of amazed by those type of people. Because we look at them and think, man, I want to I be like that person. Because that, that person has gone through some of the most crazy, horrible types of circumstances in their life, and yet they're still generous and kind and nice and not cranky and it's the type of person I want to be like. And what the Bible's going to say is that people that weather types of storms like that and do it in a way that brings God glory, it becomes a living, breathing parable of what it looks like. It's one of the reasons why even you can take, for example, on a horizontal level, relationships. When people, let's say they're both Christians, and they are at odds with each other and, and angry or and angered by each other and um, separated from each other, that what can oftentimes happen is the non-Christian world can look at that and you know, kind of shake their head in confusion. And they do. In fact, it's one of the reasons why um, John actually writes is if we claim to love God, who we cannot see, and, uh, and, and yet we actually cannot love our brother, whom we can see, he's saying that you're actually sending a confusing message. It, it, it sends a confusing message to the world because the world kind of shakes their head in disbelief and they're like, I, I don't get it. You talk about a God that's love, he's invisible, and yet you guys are at odds with everybody around you. You're condescending, angry, frustrated, upset. Uh, you're mean, gripe, complain about everybody around you. It sends, a, it sends a, a disconnecting type of a message, a confusing type of a message. And conversely, what Paul's really trying to allude to and say is that when we send a message by way of our life, that rather than allowing um, dissonance to have the day rather than allowing disharmony to be what governs or dictates relationships. Instead, we give way to forgiveness, repentance, humbleness, generosity, kindness. That also is a script or a storyline or a parable or a message that points to the larger, greater storyline that's at work within the universe, i.e. the one of God who's come down what God is doing at work in our lives. The God that is actually forgiving people who don't deserve to be forgiven. The God who's actually loving and accepting people who actually should be abandoned and turned their backs on because of their infidelity. And yet God is doing that. And when his people live that out in these various types of roles in life, what they do is they put God on display. They make Jesus appear or be seen in beauty. People see God, in other words. So, with that being said, I want to begin to understand a little bit further how this begins to work out. Now, um, Tim Keller had written a book. Some of you guys might know who he is. He's an author. He's a pastor. Um, and him and his wife actually wrote a book. I think it's called The Meaning of Marriage. There's a lot of great things that they said. I didn't get a chance to read the entire book, but some of the bits and pieces I did read, there's some great ideas and concepts that were kind of uh, thrown out or tossed out or you know, thrown, to really chew on and think about. And one of the things that they begin to talk about is sort of the reality that within this, that every single human being within the various roles in which they're called to live, have an opportunity to engage what you know, his wife actually describes as the Jesus role or the role of Jesus. And we'll get to that more in just a moment. But the idea is that if we begin to see the meaning behind the actual reality. So for example, what's marriage all about? Is it just for two people who can never really agree on anything? Or maybe to some degree, varying degrees, actually very insecure with each other. What's the purpose of marriage? And the problem is in a lot of ways is that because we start from a wrong framework, we end up with wrong answers. I was just reading a brief article. I didn't get a chance to read through the entire thing, but I think it was around April. There's an article that was in the New York Times that basically the question, uh, title of the uh, whole article was, what's the relevancy of marriage? 
And that's a completely logical question to ask because in a lot of ways in the world, in the culture in which we live in, is we see it becoming less and less relevant because of the way that it's become. So with that being said, what I want to begin to do now is I want to, I want to deal with a little bit of the perceptions of marriage that we have within our culture. So the next slide, I want to begin to take a look at some of the cultural facts of marriage. And to do this, I'm going to take a look at three specific um, um, facts about marriage. First, we'll take a look at the marriage rate. Then we'll take a look at the divorce rate. Then we'll take a look at the, uh, the cohabitation rate. So the first of all, the marriage rate. In 1960, 72% of all American adults were actually married. I've said this before, but um, as a family, I've, I've got two daughters and uh, we have Netflix and we love watching like old black and white uh, shows. Like some of them we love are like Dick Van Dyke or Beaver or um, um, I don't know, I Love Lucy and all that. So we, we, we've like gone through all of these shows, all right? And it's kind of interesting because we can look at those and be like, that's like the good old days. You know, everyone was married. Everybody just seemed all happy and chipper in these marriages. And it's funny because on a lot of these old school shows is that in the bedroom where, you know, it's not that they did not show people in the bedroom, but when they showed them in the bedroom, um, they would oftentimes have beds separated. So um, they were married. They were living together, obviously, as married adults. But there was a sense where they never really kind of showed the bed and showed what's oftentimes implied and so on and so forth. But back then, the majority of Americans were actually married. Compare that with 2008, only 50% of American adults were actually married within that time frame. And um, demographers also kind of point out, they project that at least 80% of all Americans at some point in their life will actually end up getting married. I heard another um, report that actually stated that around 90%. So I kind of lowballed it and just went with 80%. So it says even if 80%, all right, lowballing ball, low on 80%, what that means is, I already kind of alluded to earlier, that every single one of you, the majority of every single one of you will be married at some point in the future, at some point. For some of you, that's daunting. That's kind of scary. For some of you, you're like, it's hopeful because you've been wanting to get married for a long time and it hasn't happened yet. And so just cheer up because one day, according to statistics, you will actually end up getting that person that you've been longing for. So hopefully you make the right choice and you find the right person. But anyways, let's take a look at secondly, statistics that have to do with the divorce rate. So the divorce rate today is nearly twice that of what it was in 1960. So back in the 60s, um, not as you know, I mean, divorce was always around, but not as severe as and acute as it is today. Today, um, it's double that. So finally, let's take a look at the cohabitation rate. Um, and in 1960, virtually no one, this was kind of shocking to me, no one cohabited. You, you didn't have a dude moving in with his girlfriend, just kind of living for the next eight months, having sex for free. Um, kind of experimenting whether or not, deciding, trying to determine whether or not this relationship's going to be the right one or not. It just didn't happen. And if it did happen, it was definitely not talked about. It wasn't like subject matter you'd bring up, you know, at a water cooler or within a locker room. It just didn't happen. In 2013, over 50% actually lived together before marriage. All right, so 2013, this year, 50% of all actually lived together before marriage. Um, 25% of all unmarried women before 20, uh, between the ages of 25 or 39 years old are currently living with a partner. So f- uh, one quarter of all women uh, between ages 25 or 39 are actually currently living with a partner. 60% of all unmarried women by their late 30s uh, would have been actually living or cohabiting with someone. Um, what this tells us is that what people are doing in today's culture is that rather than engaging in covenant marriage... Um, they're looking for alternatives. Um, in some ways, maybe would even consider them more like shortcuts. 
and we'll explain why. But the reality is, is I think what this actually tells us in terms of statistics, it just simply tells us that our culture, in a lot of ways, have become very jaded with regard to what marriage is all about. In fact, kind of quote a modern prophet of today's world, um, none other than Chris Rock, says this. um, He says, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? I think in a lot of ways, this question is very poignant because in a lot of ways, it actually addresses the, the, you know, this is one of the great things about comedians. I mean, comedians are actually able to kind of put their finger upon stuff that every one of us think about all the time. It's kind of right there in the forefront, but no one's able to either say it because they don't know how to say it the way a comedian does, or they're too afraid or too embarrassed to say it. And then you always get a comedian that comes out and they say it and they're like, yes, that's exactly the way that I've always felt. Like, why do I want to get married? Because if I'm going to get married, it's going to be bored for the rest of my life. Or if I get married to someone that is a jerk and it's like an eternal help. It's, I'm being eternally consigned to hell. Flip side of it is, is that if I don't get married, then I'm going to perennially live within sort of this realm of sampling other people, other partners, and forever I'll be consigned to loneliness. And so all I'm just simply saying is that I think Chris, Rock, Chris Rock's voice is actually very poignant within today's culture. And I think if you're really honest with yourself, in a lot of ways, perhaps maybe some of us to some degree have kind of felt this very same thing. We've looked at marriage... We've sampled it, we've tasted it, we've been in part of it, and to some degree we've backed down from it because at the end of the day, as a culture, we are cynical, pessimistic, confused about marriage, and yet, this is what's shocking to me, and yet extremely curious about it still. In other words, we are eternally, no pun intended, married to this concept of marriage, no matter how irrelevant we may think it may be, no matter how frustrating it may cause us to feel, no matter how cynical we might be with regard to it, no matter how confused we might be because of it, we're married to the idea. And we will figure out, we'll try some way to make it work. And what Paul is actually saying, is he's saying is that those are not the only two options that you're left with. That those might be the two options that culture says you're stuck with these. Married, and perennially, perennially bored or single and forever lonely. You're stuck with it. Deal with it. Deal with the hand that you're given. But what the Bible's going to come out and say, what Paul's going to basically say, no, no, those are, those are maybe the, the options that the world gives you, but that's not, and those are not the options that God offers you. That God offers another way, a route that is actually redemptive, a route that actually brings life, a path that actually is restorative. It's hopeful. And this is what Paul is going to begin to unpack for us. And so with that, I want to begin to try to understand a little bit more about this concept of what marriage is. And to do that, we've got to basically take a look at two specific words. I'll tell you what they are, and I'll begin to take a look at them. Two words that we have to really unpack and really understand is, first of all, the word submission. Second word is headship. Now, one of those words, I won't say which, some of us absolutely bristle against. All right? Like, say the word, and you're like, ugh, don't like that word. But the reality is, as we begin to unpack this, understand this, in a lot of ways, we begin to realize this is actually the way the culture and society works. So the first word I want to begin to try to take a look at and unpack is this concept of submission. Now, as I already alluded to earlier, that if Paul is making sort of this statement that why marriage matters and why families matter and why the workplace matters, is because each of these individually and perhaps even as a part of a whole, become various stages, platforms, by which to make Jesus look beautiful. If done right, they all matter. 
And within each of these stages or platforms, there is a role by which each of these people within these stages or platforms live out. So for example, in the marriage, there's a husband and there's a wife. In the family, there's a father and children. In the workplace, there's a master and servants. You know that each one of those, it's kind of ironic, that each one of those metaphors, or each one of those roles, I should say, are also metaphorical for various roles of God. God is defined, Jesus is defined as a bridegroom. He is a husband. God is defined as a father. Also, God is defined as a master, and we are considered his servants. So each one of these are ideas or concepts that we actually glean from or derive from God. So I would suggest that when we divorce these concepts or remove perhaps these ideas of marriage, family, and the workplace from this bigger, larger context of God, then what we're left with is to somehow make sense of these things. And what I'm suggesting to you is that when we remove God from the scenario, the way that we're trying to make sense of these things really isn't working out. And I would suggest to you it's what type of sense that we're trying to make of these things that is, end, is ending up leaving us feeling broken and ruined and discouraged and confused and stressed out and terrified and all of these things that we think and feel about with regard to marriage. Does that make sense? So I want to begin to, first of all, take a look at this first idea, this concept of submission. And with that, we begin to see that this is sort of the idea that Paul is going to write, verse 18, um, to the women. And he's going to say, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So again, his whole point, this concept of submit, again, it's a word that oftentimes gets misused. And I would even go so far to admit that um, throughout the church's history, this verse has been more abused by more men than ever, than perhaps mo- most any other verse throughout the entire Bible. Because oftentimes what has happened is that this verse has become, become synonymous with oppression. It becomes synonymous with submitting yourself, subjecting yourself to a jerk who doesn't know how to treat you well, who's not kind, who's just simply trying to usurp his authority and oppress you. And I would suggest to you that that is not at all in any way, shape, or form the concept or the picture that Paul is trying to portray. In fact, what Paul's actually doing is he is gaining, he's learning his understanding with regard to headship, which we'll get to next, not from a vacuum. He's not just simply defining these things as he's going along. He's actually rooting every single concept he has in Jesus. So submission in Jesus, headship in Jesus, both are roles in which Jesus himself plays out. How does Jesus embody the role of submission. We'll get to that more in a second. But Jesus submits himself. We're told several times, Jesus submits himself to the Father. He subjects himself to death, even death on the cross. How is Jesus master? Well, in many ways, Paul's kind of unpacked that all throughout chapter one, chapter two, that Jesus is the master of all things. He's created all things. So what we're trying to say is that this concept of Um, submission and then ultimately headship are actually rooted in various roles and activities of Jesus himself. So first of all, let's begin to take a look at three specific things with with regard to submission. So first of all, submission is mutual. It's mutual. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, verse 21 says this. I don't have it up on screen. You just got to turn to it in your Bibles. It says this in Ephesians 5, 21. Give thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then immediately after that, Paul then goes on to say, women, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
So Paul isn't just, again, just simply saying randomly, women, submit yourself to some oppressive idiot. He's saying, as the two of you, husband and wife, are mutually submitting yourselves to each other. Wife, submit yourself to that guy. This is not at all Paul suggesting women submit yourself to an extremely oppressive dictator who wants to rule everything and have the controller of everything in his life and is just basically forcing himself upon anything and everything within your life. Not at all saying that. He is saying that, first of all, it all begins within mutual submission. Secondly, it's humility, not inferiority. All of us are equal. It's important for us to understand this. Men and women are both equal, created equal in God's eyes. This is absolutely important. Has the church abused this? Have there been false teachings, concepts that have arisen within the church that have taught otherwise or at least implied otherwise? I mean, I'll, I'll be straight up honest. There is plenty. In fact, I don't have time to kind of go off on rabbit trails, but I'd be happy to fight for the women and kind of point out that I've seen, I've watched, I've witnessed up close in the front stands of systems that take advantage of women and give authority, extreme authority to the men in order to oppress the women. It's not okay. It's not right. It's not gospel. God's not being portrayed rightly within those circumstances. But the point of the matter is, is that this is not about inferiority. This is not about a woman somehow being lesser than a man. In fact, uh, the Old Testament describes woman as being a helpmate. Think of it as being a right hand and a left hand. Both have value. Both perform uh, very important functions within a human being's life. The idea is that the helpmate comes and really rounds off and completes and makes whole this other half that's incomplete or not whole. So in other words, it's not this picture of inferiority, but it is really a picture of humility. Thirdly, it says that it's to be as unto the Lord. And again, Paul says this in verse 18. He says, wives submit to your husbands and uh, as is fitting in the Lord. Um, in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, it says, Jesus praying, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so what we see is that what Paul is basically saying is sort of kind of a variation of that, that at the end of the day, the submission of a woman is, is really to God. So the question oftentimes can be asked, should a woman submit to a, an, an oppressive, um, not kind, not nice, not humble husband? And my answer to that is No. She needs to deal with that. She needs to lovingly, if she's in, afraid of him, then bring in an outside party. Find a pastor. Find maybe even a policeman. If the man is breaking the law, he needs to pay for that. So the idea is, is that the gospel comes on the scene and says, it's here to protect the vulnerable, not somehow cover up for some idiot who does not know how to treat women kindly or politely. It's to re- reveal areas that need to be addressed. And it's one of the reasons why Paul says, submit as unto God, as if you're doing this for God. That also means that, again, there may be times where a husband needs to be challenged and confronted. And there's times when if a husband is humble, he will actually open the door to his wife and say, confront me, challenge me. I want to change. I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to be like my default mode, which is stolen. I don't want to be that. I want to be humble. I want to be like Jesus. And so he opens the door widely for the woman to be able to critique him, lovingly critique him so that he can grow, so that he can grow in humility and grow in righteousness like God. So I want to jump on to the very next thing 
and we'll finish this up. I want to take a look at the role of Jesus in headship. So now we're going to shift from women now to begin to take a look at some of the dudes. Um, we're going to take a look at the concept of headship. And what I want to do is I want to begin to take a look at a handful of these things. First of all, Colossians 3.19 tells us that um, this role of headship has to do with loving your wives. It's what he says. Um, this idea, husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. And again, we need to kind of get a little bit of a definition or description as to what love is. Oftentimes we think of love in terms of purely sentimental terms. Just purely what you feel, how you feel about somebody or how you feel in a particular scenario. But the idea is that this is about commitment, not mere chemistry. Now, chemistry might play a role in some relationships. In fact, oftentimes chemistry may play a very major role at the beginning of a relationship. I mean, you can remember back in the day, like when maybe when you first met someone that you fell in love with and you first held their hand or you first kissed them, that was, there was that amazing feeling that kind of went along or accompanied that kind of that euphoric feeling. You guys all know what I'm talking about, right? You all know what I'm talking about, most of you. But the point of the matter is this, is that that feeling, that chemistry that you had, sometimes people will ask, you know, do you still have that? I mean, I've been married 23 years, going on 20, uh, 24 years. Um, sometimes people ask, you know, do you have that exact same rush or that emotion that you had when you first met your wife? And the answer to that is sometimes yes. But most of the time, No. And because oftentimes the reality is, is that someone actually has done some studies on this. And one of the things I actually discovered is that usually that euphoric feeling that you have when someone is actually into you, when you discover that they're really into you, one of the ways that you kind of really define or determine whether or not they're really into you is because they actually hold your hand back or they return your phone call or they text you back or they seek you out or they kiss you or they show some sign of affection to you. Now you're in that euphoric moment. And someone actually, I, I think, rightly identified that really what that emotion is is largely self-centered. You're actually feeling the sense of like, oh my gosh, someone actually likes me and it's somebody that I highly value. They're really into me. This is like amazing. They're into me. They kissed me. They held my hand. They wanted to talk to me. They wanted to be seen with me. It's self-centered, actually. You're blown away by the fact that they're into you. And over time, that actually wears off. And it gives way to a deeper, more rooted, more grounded sense of commitment whereby you give yourself away. And so at first, this is about loving your wife, men, and not so much about mere chemistry. Um, let me give you an example. I, as a family, um, as, a, as a father who has two daughters uh, within my family, and we oftentimes at dinner time will pray and we'll read the scripture and stuff like that. And one of the passages that we oftentimes read or the scriptures that we oftentimes read is one of my favorites. Like it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's actually a Bible that's written for kids, but it's so good. I love it so much. And the pictures are so good. Um, <laughs> I still actually read it to my, my, my high school age daughters. And so actually I don't read it. They, they read it to me and we talk about it. And we're, I'm like, we're really into it. Like we read it all the time and we always learn something new out of it. And so last night um, we were reading, we had family dinner and, uh, came across one of these little passages in it, and it was uh, recounting the time when God actually delivered the people of Israel from Egypt. And um, what God was basically saying is that, I, I love my people in spite of their inf infidelity and their unfaithfulness to me. I'm so in love with them. And this is kind of what uh, the lady had written this out. She says, God rescued his people time and time again because of his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Again, it's like I said, it's kind of written for little kids, but you get the idea. 
And I read that and I was like, oh, that is so awesome. That's the type of love that God has for us. It's never ending, never giving up, never stopping, never failing. Who's he loving? Someone who's always failing. Someone who's always blowing it. Someone who's always unfaithful. Is God loving me because of chemistry? Commitment. He loves me because of covenant and commitment. So love, first of all, is to love your wife. Secondly, it's about covenant, not cohabitation. Covenant, not cohabitation. Covenant is a word that really, in a lot of ways, is largely, we as a culture, are completely unfamiliar with it. But the word covenant basically is this idea when two parties come together, one party will basically make the deal, strike the deal. And it's, it's a way of designing saying, regardless of what happens, these are the circumstances of the covenant and I will never, ever, 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 ever break the covenant, my part, ever. I will covenant myself to you. We don't live in that culture. We live in a culture that has arrangements that if for some reason we fall out of love, or for some reason, something doesn't happen quite right within the marriage, we look for easy ways out. Why do we do that? Because again, like I said earlier, in verse 13, Paul says, put on love. What does love do? Binds together. Love is is like a body that's completely within joint. Every ligament, every bone, every joint within the body is functioning, flourishing properly. Flip side of is embitterment, angry, hate, what that does is that leads to a disjointedness, a breaking apart, a breaking down, a disintegration. And so the idea is that what God does is he covenants to us. And what God is saying to the men, men, covenant, give yourself completely to someone else. And here's the way that we oftentimes think about this is what we oftentimes look at covenants of saying, I will give myself away as long as they measure up and stack up to certain things. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, go marry someone that you're absolutely not attractive to, um, I, you know, everything within reason, okay? But the point of the matter is, is that if a man, as a man, looks at a woman and it has, has just simply looks at certain things of saying, I will marry you if you fit within certain, you know, perigenes or things like that, oftentimes the way our culture typically can work and become very shallow with regard to, that the moment that she stopped fitting in those genes because she had her fourth child, and you just immediately write it off, get rid of her. That type of scenario creates a very uneasy, unhealthy, insecure scenario. And so we know this as a culture. One of the reasons why we're so skittish with regard to marriage, because we're like, I've seen that happen. Maybe that's what happened to my parents. I've mentioned this to you guys before that my parents actually got divorced. And, I, you know, I kind of went through a phase where I was totally jaded. I was completely cynical with regard to it. I didn't want to get married. I was completely anti-getting married. And then, you know, I met my wife, proverbially. And the reality is, is that everything changed. God through the gospel, began to reshape my understanding with regard to what marriage can and should look like. Does that mean I have a perfect marriage? Not at all. And my wife and I, like I said, we're going on 24 years. We're still learning how to give and take. I'm still learning how to sacrifice myself, to lay my lay my life down, to give up of myself for the benefit of my wife. But the point that I want to finish up on with regard to this concept is that oftentimes the way a culture works with this is that we're so scared, so afraid of completely covenanting ourselves away to somebody else without having some sort of backdoor policy to get out. And yet we are, like I said, eternally curious about marriage. Meaning we still, we can't just drop it. We can't walk away from it. We can't just get it out of our minds. We still want to experiment with it. So we experiment by way of cohabitation. 
which really at the end of the day is two people like predators sampling each other. It is. It's, It's a man sampling you as a woman for months, maybe years, to see if he likes you, to see if it's a compatible, see if it's gonna work out. And here's the problem with that, is that as cohabitation becomes sort of the norm in our culture, what really at the end of the day is cohabitation leaves us with this kind of constant ongoing, ongoing marketing promotion realm in which that's really all you're at. You're constantly having to market yourself and constantly having to promote yourself, always with this eternal fear of if for some reason you gain a little weight or if for some reason you get found out, if for some reason the real you gets seen, there is this perennial fear that you will be abandoned. That's exhausting. You know what solves that? Knowing that your partner has covenanted to you till death do you part in sickness and in health, no matter how evil, wicked, sinful, messed up, unfaithful, unkind, unloving you are or will ever become. That is life-changing. And I'll tell you what, at the end of the day, that's the type of relationship all of us want to be in. I've said this before, that one of our greatest fears is being known, being known, people knowing about our lives, but then us being abandoned. But if we're, if we are in a scenario where that happens, that's dehumanizing, it destroys us, it crushes us. But the greatest place that we can be in is completely known, even though we're completely loved completely loved even though we're completely known. People know everything about us. The person knows everything about us. And we don't give our hearts to that many people like that. It's one of the reasons, honestly, why I think our culture has a fascination with Facebook. Because there's something about us that says, I want people to know me, but not everything about me. So we edit material. We edit bits and pieces. We put the best photos of us on Facebook. The ones that make us look really good or ripped or, you know, your face looks awesome or your hair looks amazing, or if you're a girl, you got like awesome fingernails. All of these things, like we, we edit the information about ourselves that the world gets to know because in, innately inside of us, we want desperately to be known and liked. But we also know there's this incredible fear that if we give out too much information, we will be abandoned. And what Paul is saying is that the way that marriage gets redeemed and restored is men They covenant, not cohabit. Man, let me say one final thing. Jesus didn't have sex with his church. Jesus married his church. If you want to be like Jesus, stop having sex with your girlfriend and get married to her. Stop it. You are ruining her life. You are messing her up. You are playing with her affections and playing with her emotions. And she's not just a project for you. She is a daughter of God. And you will stand accountable to God one day for your actions with her. I suggest you grow up and think about your life beyond yourself and think about the impact that you are having upon other people's lives. Jesus doesn't just simply date, he covenants himself. He gives himself wholeheartedly. And this is the model, the picture that Paul says that when done right, puts Jesus in such unbelievable light that he looks beautiful and attractive. Third thing, it's about authority. Headship is about authority. 
And oftentimes people kind of ask this question, especially in today's culture, you know, when there's a lot of like uh, ideas and misinformation as far as like who's really in charge. Is it the woman, a powerful woman, a powerful man? Who really should be the head of the household and so on and so forth? But the point of the matter is, is the question or the issue really is not whether or not will you as a man lead. The question really is, is how will you lead? You need to understand this. It's not will you lead, it's how you will lead. You will either lead strong, lead well, or you will not lead well. Adam, our first father, did not lead well. Um, God asked Eve, after partaking of the fruit, um, where is Adam? And ultimately, at the end of the day, Adam was not there. He did not lead well. And so we are all, as men, in a place of authority and leadership. But the question is, will we lead well? Marriage is ultimately not for, uh, is, is not for boys. It's for men. And ultimately what ends up happening is that there's a tendency or propensity within our culture to think that if you're a boy, that if you get married, you'll immediately become a man. And unfortunately, oftentimes what ends up happening is there's a lot of boys that are married. And the problem with that is what ends up taking place is you end up hurting or wounding or breaking the heart of a woman. Because you're still a boy. You haven't learned how to take responsibility for yourself. You have not learned how to take responsibility for somebody else. So one of the reasons why men need to really think about the type of responsibility they are taking for themselves and on a horizontal level with regard to maybe even some of the more intimate relationships in their life, if they've got children, how well are they taking responsibility of their children? Or with the church, if they're involved in the church, how well are they taking responsibility of the church? So think about those ways. And I, I want to say one final thing with regard to this as we kind of move on. I don't want you guys to kind of hear this and become totally discouraged and overwhelmed and be like, I can't do this. This should not be discouraging to the degree of it leaves anyone in despair. It should cause us to recognize that at the end of the day, all of this points to Jesus, and this is what Jesus has done for us, because really at the end of the day, all of us have miserably failed. And so for us to be rescued or for us to be saved, we need a massive miracle done on our behalf, which means we need a massive Savior. Fortunately, this is the message of the gospel. And the third thing, or fourth thing, I should say, not only are we in authority, but we are an authority under authority. Men need to understand that the authority that you have has been delegated to you. You don't innately have it or possess it. It's been given to you by God. At the end of the day, there's an authority over you. One of the number one problems I oftentimes see in relationships is that men forget the fact or operate in a realm in a way in which they have nobody as a functional authority over them. It's the number one problem. And some of the women here are actually shaking their head. I can tell, like this, yes, I know. I know what this feels like. Most of the times, almost every single, let me give you a little bit of a hint, men, in most of the conversations I've ever had with women, all right, um, oftentimes a woman might not be able to express the concerns or feelings or emotions that she's having with regard to a relationship. And oftentimes as men, we're not too bright. And oftentimes we can just simply look at a woman and be like, she's losing it. What's her problem? But in reality, the reason why she might be quote unquote losing it is because we are initiating something that's creating a radical sense of insecurity in her. It actually originates with us. And oftentimes I'll ask a woman like, like, she might not oftentimes be able to ex- explain it this way, but then I'll ask a woman, like, do, do you feel like maybe your husband or your boyfriend, the problem that you're actually sending is that he doesn't have any authority. Is there any authority in his life? Do you have a confidence in his walk with Jesus? Do you have a confidence in his relationship with his mentor, his, his pastor, his Bible study leader? She might come back and be like, he's not involved in the Bible study. He barely goes to church. And I don't even know if he reads his Bible or prays or seeks God. I don't, I, I don't know. What she's in essence saying, I do not know whether or not he has, if he's under authority, under anybody. And what she's basically saying, I feel like I'm following a guy who's lost. 
and it's scary. So man, I want you to think about this. Who are you under the authority of? Who's your authority? Who are you submitted to? Who have you given yourself to? Ultimately, it's King Jesus. Is he really your authority? Is he functionally, functioning as the authority over your life? I'm gonna move on. Uh, fifthly, think about friendship. Think about friendship. John chapter 15, verse 13, he says, this greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. What we see with Jesus is that Jesus is this perfect picture of friendship. That he says, I'm gonna reshape the relationship that I have with you and you, I now call my friends. Friendship is amazing. And in fact, I would say every marriage um, should start with friendship first. But oftentimes, again, the way our culture functions and works is we don't start with friendship first. We start with a figure. We start with looks. It's one of the reasons why oftentimes men can walk into a room and out of 10 girls that are there within, you know, a minute, 60 seconds, can literally look at those 10 girls and completely knock out six of those girls out of the contending for each other. And four of those girls will basically become women that he will actually spend any time with or think about or give any time of day to because they have a pretty face or a nice figure. And that's it. There's no relationship. It's just purely physical. And here's what I would suggest. And here's what the Bible actually says is that everything that oftentimes we anchor our lives into or give ourselves over to fades away. Physical beauty fades away. It fades away. And that's the reality that we have to be confronted with. Now, some of us might kind of run the risk and be like, well, that's fine. I'll just take what I can get for right now. And again, what you're actually basically stating is that I will live for myself and I will take advantage of others. I will take from them at great expense to themselves, but great benefit for myself. That's the exact opposite of what the gospel portrays, actually. Jesus turns that on his head and he says, no, no, here's what I will do is I will, at great expense to myself and great benefit to them, I will lay my life down for them and covenant myself to them. And I will call them my friends. I will welcome them. I met my wife in high school, 16 years old is how old we were when we met each other. And I have been best friends with her. She's been my best friend throughout her entire life. I often tell people, I'm like, I, I married my best friend. Like, I've been with my wife in our teens. I've been with my wife throughout our 20s, throughout our 30s. We're kind of halfway through, going through halfway through our 40s. I hope to be with her through our 80s or 90s or however long we should find ourselves living on this planet. And the reality is, is that she is my best friend. We don't always agree on every little last detail. We don't always kind of see eye to eye on everything. It oftentimes takes working through things, but I have a great confidence that in spite of my failings and her failings, I have covenanted myself to her. She has covenanted herself to me, and that creates an unbelievable amount of security within our relationship. That's something this world is constantly wrestling with, is this ongoing level of insecurity. Will they love me if I gain 10 pounds? Will they love me if, you know, if you're a dude and you got lots of hair on your back and you come to find out like, oh my gosh, he looks like a Wookiee. Like, will she still love me? <laughs> will love still be what holds them together? So the point is, and I'll wrap this up. Sixth thing is cultivation. Think of headship as cultivation whereby it's like a garden and you're cultivating. And oftentimes men will look at their relationships and their wives and their spouses and say, it's almost like there's a lot of weeds everywhere. There's a lot of things that are messed up, a lot of things that are out of order. Well, God actually calls you as a man to do something about that, to do some weeding, to take 
your time, to get your hands dirty, to be willing to become soiled at the expense or at the benefit of the one whom you love. This is exactly what Jesus does for us. He was willing at great expense to himself to be soiled, to be made dirty, to be disintegrated, to be broken, so that we can be cultivated into a garden that's productive and beautiful and fruitful. Finally, seventhly, protection. Is that this is the idea whereby a man is called to protect to protect, and that the strength that God gives him is strength that is to be used to protect. And oftentimes men fall into one of two categories, either being too tough, aggressive, or too tender, too passive. And oftentimes men fall into one of these two categories. If you are too tough, you will be a great threat and you will abuse your family. If you are too tender, you will allow others to threaten and abuse your family. Jesus was both. Simultaneously. It's one of the reasons why Jesus is absolutely beautiful. These two almost apparently seemingly paradoxical concepts of toughness and tenderness are literally brought together in Christ because he was incredibly tough with people who threatened the ones whom he loved, but he was unbelievably tender to those who were vulnerable and weak and needed help. Men, this is what God calls us to. The last thing I want to finish with, I have the team come on up, and we're going to finish with a song closing, a couple songs of worship, is I want you to think about the question, how do we do this? How can we change? Because, again, like I said earlier, and I made an allusion to, this shouldn't overwhelm us with a sense of guilt. What this should do is it should cause us to realize that all of us are deeply flawed human beings. All of us have been unfaithful. All of us have broken rank with what God calls us to and broken the image or the picture that God wants to put on public display for all. But if you see in Jesus on the cross a bridegroom, a husband, willing to take upon himself the pain, the shame, the brokenness, the hurt, the disintegration, the out-of-jointedness of everything dysfunctional in this life upon himself because he loves you, that will change you. Let me put it into another way. Because oftentimes when we talk about any type of relationship, relationships can only happen when two parties are willing to be vulnerable. Right? You guys agree with that? But that's a problem, isn't it? Because if you're cynic, or if you're cynical, or if you're skeptical, how many people are you going to be willing to be vulnerable with? Zero. So if the gospel says... For you to receive the benefits of Jesus, you've got to be willing to be vulnerable with them. So that, that's a problem for us because how can we become vulnerable with a God we can't even see, we don't even know about in a lot of ways, in very tangible ways? How can we become vulnerable with them? And the reason why we can become vulnerable with them is because on the cross, what we see is God become vulnerable with us. We see Jesus naked. We see Jesus stripped. We see Jesus shamed. He didn't have to. He's God. He's all-powerful. He's incredibly tough. But on the cross, you see him incredibly and eternally tender. Someone who is vulnerable to you as his first step of action to you, that's a person that you can be vulnerable back to. That's a person you can say, I can give them my heart and I know they will not crush it. I can give them my bruised life and they will not contribute to the bruising of my life. I can give them my heart, which is fragile, and they will not crush it. They will nurture it and cultivate it and bring it back into beautiful life. This is what the gospel offers us. 
I'm going to invite you into this. If you're here today and there's any area of life that you just find yourself broken or crushed in or let down in or out of joint in or find yourself embittered as a result of, or maybe there's circumstances or relationships you know that need mending, I want to offer you hope in the gospel. Hope in this world? No. Because the default mode of our heart is the default mode of everybody's heart, which is to abandon, to push out, to run away from, to become disjointed, to divorce. But the work of the gospel is love, and that brings everything together in harmony. I want to invite you into that. That's really good news, isn't it? It's incredibly hopeful news. So I'm going to pray. We'll partake of communion. We'll have some people off to the side to pr- uh, pray with you. We have some rugs in front. Just want to get down on your face before Jesus. Why don't we all stand? And I'm going to pray over us. And then we'll sing a few songs. And we'll dismiss you guys. God, thank you so much for the gospel that rescues us and that saves us and provides us with hope. That even though we were unfaithful, Jesus, you were incredibly faithful to us. Not because we are lovely, but to make us lovely. And that's what you call us into. God, let our marriages be a testimony, be a living parable. Those, God, that have broken, those that have been broken by marriage, gone through that meat grinder. Jesus, I pray that you bring healing to them, restoration of their souls to their hearts. So God, listen to the prayers and the songs of our heart and receive them as tokens of love and affection back to you. Let's sing. If you're, if you're a parent here and you got kids in the back, you know, we typically tell you like around 12, 35, we really need you to go pick up your kids. Sorry, I know it's a tad bit late. You're more than welcome to bring them back in here. Uh, they can sing. Make sure you just take responsibility for them once they're back in here. It gets a little bit dark. We don't want anybody to get hurt. So uh, let's sing a few songs, partake of communion, worship, confess our sins, and just give this time to God.